Judges chapter 3 is where we're going to spend our time today. A few years ago, I loaded up my family at Christmas time and we drove south out of Kansas down to Oklahoma City uh, to go meet up with my family. And so we got together with my dad and my brothers and the family. And um, my dad, when it was gift exchange time, uh, he quieted the room and kind of gave this very serious speech. It was different from what he normally does, so the moment wasn't lost on me. And he said, uh, look, this year I've, I've chosen to give gifts that have high emotional value, things that are really, really meaningful to me that I think will be meaningful to you. And uh, he said, Cody, so I'm going to start with you. And he brought out a box. It was about waist high, and, and it was pretty narrow. And he said, I want you to have this. And so I uh, unwrapped, took the wrapping paper off, opened up the box, and pulled out a putter, this golf club, a putter. And it, it's an old putter that had been around our house forever, ever since I can remember us having golf clubs in the house, this putter was there. And what made this putter unique is it had a wooden shaft. And so uh, it, it, it wasn't quite clear to me at the moment why this was so meaningful, but I didn't want to let my dad down. So I said, Dad, thanks so much. This means a lot. This has been around forever. I'm glad to have this now. And, uh, and then he told some little story about how much the putter meant to him and how glad he was for me to have it. And then I, I heard a snort, and I looked to my right, and there were my brothers, all of them eyes closed, faces red, hands over their mouths, and I thought, I can't believe they're being this disrespectful to our dad. And then I realized I'm the only one who's not in on the joke. <laughs> the whole thing was a setup. Here my, my dad had invoked emotions and played on my, uh, my sympathies just to get a laugh at my expense uh, with all the other brothers. And then I took that putter and beat them all with it. <laughs> And it was the best Christmas we ever had. (laughs) Uh, You can tell a lot about a guy by the gifts that he gives. You can learn a lot about my dad from that story. And you might say, your dad sounds like a fun guy. Well, fine. (laughs) I suppose. Loads of fun. But he is. Our God is a gift giver as well. And God's gifts reveal what His character is really, really like. In our brief, seemingly unexcited passage today that we're going to study, God lavishes His people with gifts. It may not be readily apparent on the surface, but just a little bit of looking at this short passage shows us the incredible gifts that God gives His people. We started the book of Judges a couple of weeks ago, and so far we've been through two introductions, right? Chapter 1 is its own introduction, and uh, here's the setting, here's what's happening in case you haven't been with us the last few weeks. Uh, We're at a unique period in the history of God's people. They've entered the promised land under the leadership of Joshua, and what they're supposed to do at this point is is to finish settling the land. That means removing original inhabitants and, and really taking possession of all this property. 
Uh, but they fail to do that. God's people leave the original inhabitants there. Instead of forcing them out, disposing of them, they enslave them. Israel has a mighty army. They've got mighty structure. They've got the land under control. And now they have all these slaves. The former slaves have become slaveholders themselves. And as a result, God's people chase after the gods of these original inhabitants. And it makes for a horrible, horrible scene. Uh, Because they turn on Yahweh and they turn to these false gods, Judges describes this sick cycle that God's people go through. The cycle looks like this. They will chase after false gods, turning on Yahweh. Because of this, God gives them over to an enemy nation. They suffer under the oppression of that enemy nation for a number of years, and then God sends a judge. Now, you remember what a judge is. A judge is a tribal military leader. So these military leaders come. They rescue God's people from the hand of the enemy. As long as the judge is alive, God's people walk in covenant faithfulness with the Lord. But then when the judge dies, God's people like a pig in its slop, go right back to their idol-chasing ways, and the whole cycle starts all over again. Judges describes this cycle over and over and over again. Chapter 1, we studied a few weeks ago, speaks to us about the military side of Israel's faithlessness. Chapter 2, we studied a couple weeks ago, tells us about the religious side of Israel's faithlessness. And now this morning we meet our first judge in this first case study of the cycle of Israel's sin and deliverance, and our first judge is a guy named Othniel. And in this story, we're going to learn a little bit about Othniel and a whole bunch about God. My belief is that if we know God with greater clarity, then we're going to trust Him with greater intensity. And so my goal today is to grow your faith by helping you see God clearer. So I want to show you in this passage three gifts God gives to his people. When we see the kind of gift giver God is, I'm hoping we'll trust him better. So I want you to follow along with me as I read Judges chapter 3. I'm going to start in verse 7. The Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and the Asherahs. The anger of the Lord burned against Israel so that he sold them into the hands of Cushan Rishathaim, king of Aram Naharaim, to whom the Israelites were subject for eight years. But when they cried out to the Lord, he raised up for them a deliverer, Othniel, son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother who saved them. The Spirit of the Lord came upon him so that he became Israel's judge and went to war. The Lord gave Cushan, Rishathaim, king of Aram, into the hands of Othniel, who overpowered him. And so the land had peace for 40 years until Othniel, son of Kenaz, died. What are the gifts God gives to his people in this story? Let me show you three gifts God gives to his people in this story. First of all, God gives grace to his forgetful people. God gives grace to his forgetful people. Verses 7 and 8 highlight this for us. So our case study begins with a description of Israel's wrongdoing. Verses 7 and 8 describe Israel's sin, and verse 8 describes the Lord's angry response. And at first, Israel's sin 
may not seem all that serious to us. Sure, it's called evil in verse 7. The Israelites did evil, but then the follow-up seems like a letdown. They forgot the Lord their God. How big of a deal is it really to forget? We forget things all the time. I have to take a list to the grocery store or I will forget everything and buy absolutely nothing we need. Without a list, I don't save money. I spend more money without a list because I'll forget. We forget to buy stuff at the store. We forget appointments. We forget that navy socks don't go with black slacks. We forget all of these kinds of things all the time. Forgetting is common and it's seemingly harmless, but... The forgetfulness here by Israel in verse 7 is a forgetfulness of a different type. Now again, we, we might come to Israel's defense and say, oh, well, well look, they've, just, they've forgotten the stories. They didn't have vacation Bible school and flannel graphs back in the day. So the stories didn't get transmitted as they should have from one generation to the next. They just forget the stories and they forget the commands. That's, that's not right. They, they know the stories, and they know the commands. If you were to ask an Israelite, are you an Israelite or a Canaanite, they would tell you quickly, I'm an Israelite. That's not just an ethnic or a national designation. It's a religious designation in this case. So they know the stories. They know the commands. They know Yahweh, but we're told that they forget him. So what is it that's so bad about their forgetfulness? Well, I think we can mine verse 7 And we can learn a lot about the flavor of their forgetfulness. Let me give you a few characteristics of this forgetfulness of God. Their forgetfulness first is a failure of faith. The decision to serve Baals and Asherahs was at some level a pragmatic decision. It's not that they had some sort of uh, lucid debate with a nice Canaanite neighbor who won them to the ways of Baal and led them to leave Yahweh. What happens is you, the Israelite farmer, you want a good crop and you want respect. You want a lot of kids. And so what you do is you hang on to your Yahweh worship and you blend in a bit of Baal and Asherah and Molech and you mix all of this together in some weird syncretized religion of your own making. You do it because you want something, you need something, and you think Baal or Asherah can give me what Yahweh cannot give me. It's a pragmatic decision. It's a failure of faith. It's a failure to trust God to provide or to protect or to be present or to get you through the hard day. It's a failure of faith. Second, their forgetfulness is a failure of obedience. They're violating the first commandment. There's no other gods but Yahweh. This is not negotiable. This is not up for discussion or or friendly debate. This is first commandment material. Second commandment also. You're to have no idols. So their forgetfulness of God is a failure in obedience. It's a failure in faith. It's a failure in obedience. Third, it's a failure of affection. We're told in verse 7 that they served Baals and Asherahs. To worship these gods that are made up by people is to leave the God who brought you out of Egypt, who brought you across the Red Sea, who fed you in the wilderness, who brought you into the promised land across the Jordan River, who gave Jericho into your hands and all of these other properties. It's to forget Him 
and to forget the affection that belongs to that God who's loved you so much that by His grace He brought you out of that slavery. It's a failure of affection. Their hearts are united to false gods taken away from Yahweh. Fourth characteristic, it's a forgetfulness that leads to pure evil. Those men of Israel who worshipped Baal and Asherah, they did so by going to a shrine and forgetting their vows to their wives and engaging in gross acts with temple prostitutes. And that wasn't the worst of it. In Psalm 106, we're given a snapshot of Israel's history and Here's a little commentary from the writer of Psalm 106 as to what was happening during this period of time. In Psalm 106, verse 21, it says, Israel forgot the God who saved them, who had done great things in Egypt. Verse 34, they did not destroy the people as the Lord had commanded them, but they mingled with the nations and adopted their customs. They worshipped their idols, which became a snare to them. They sacrificed their sons and their daughters to false gods. They shed innocent blood, the blood of their sons and daughters, whom they sacrificed to the idols of Canaan, and the land was desecrated by their blood. They defiled themselves by what they did, by their deeds they prostituted themselves. Therefore the Lord was angry with his people and abhorred his inheritance." So their forgetfulness of God was a failure of faith. It's a failure of obedience. It's a failure of affection. It is pure evil. It is not some little lapse in memory. It is a willing act of defiance and rebellion against God with the highest price. God's people are killing their babies to worship these false gods. Verse 7 has a few words, but a nuclear punch when we stop and we think about the grossness of it. Now, you and I might say, this is understood. But doesn't this just belong to a narrow window in the history of God's people? Well, the answer is yes and no. Yeah, it belongs to this period of history. But I would argue that you and I still struggle with forgetfulness in all of its manifestations that we find in verse 7. Now for us, it's going to look a little different. For example, I don't think any of you are going to spend this evening on some hillside nearby at an Asherah pole or a shrine to Baal. We're a civilized people and and we don't do those types of things. But nevertheless, we we are idolaters. So, you will come to church this morning and you will use pornography. You will come to church and you will sell your soul to a 70-hour work week at the expense of your family. We may not be actively sacrificing our children to false gods, but we may be engaging in a slow sacrifice as we teach them the forgetfulness of God. I would argue that we teach the forgetfulness of God when church attendance is secondary to our sports involvement on Sunday mornings. So can I just touch on a real sensitive spot here for a moment? Um, Like, I'm not a legalist when it comes to church attendance. You miss a Sunday? That's cool. 
Uh, I'm not a legalist when it comes to sports involvement. I don't think sports are bad. I don't think we win a culture war by pulling our kids out of heathen sports and putting them in Christian sports or anything like that. We need Christian coaches. We need Christian soccer players and lacrosse players and whatever else it is that our kids play, gymnastics, volleyball, all these things. We need our kids. In the, we need Christian parents sitting next to non-Christian parents in the bleachers and bringing the orange wedges and doing all those things. We need to be active. And our kids learn good things and we build great memories and it's, and it's fantastic. But you've got to know you have a choice. You can tell the coach, we're all in except for Sunday mornings. You have that choice. And, and, and even if you, you choose to participate on the Sunday morning and miss this soul-satisfying time with your brothers and sisters in the faith, even if you miss it, at the very least, brother and sister, you have to supplement the spiritual nourishment of your family in some way. Now, if that coach says to you, hey, I'm sorry, that's not, that's not going to work for this team, then praise God. Get your money back, buy a jigsaw puzzle, stay home for a change and enjoy the ease in your schedule. It's going to be okay, I promise. It'll be okay. But look, mom and dad, we shouldn't let leagues set the priorities for our families. And if we only attend church when the sports schedule allows it, then we have a spiritual problem. I love you. I want to cheer for your kids. I want to come and watch games and do all of that. And I want to hear about it. If you miss on a Sunday because you went to a ball game, don't feel like you've got to avoid me because <laughs> I'll look at you nasty or something like that. That's not, that's not the game that I play. We've got to confront these things. We don't want to teach our children the forgetfulness of God. We want them to know that God is supreme, to be loved and valued above everything, not just sports, but our jobs, every other thing. He's supreme in all of this. This is where you could say amen in agreement with me if you want. All right, that's good. That's good. Thank you. <laughs> the question you'd ask now is this. So, okay, Cody, that was a heavy hammer. Where's the grace? You said there's grace for God's forgetful people in this story. There is. In fact, this brief story is dripping with grace. There's grace at the end of the story in the peace that God's people enjoy for 40 years. There's grace in the middle of the story when God raises up Othniel, son of Kenaz, to come in and rescue his people. There's grace in verse 8 in the oppression that God's people are put under. It's a weird grace, but it's grace nonetheless. Because it's not just cold punishment. It's not just some cranky God unloading on his disobedient people. This is a faithful God who loves his people so much he will use whatever creative means he must in order to draw them back to him. This oppression is for the sake of their repentance. God doesn't owe them this. God could leave them to their bells and their asherahs and then one day they close their eyes here, open their eyes in eternity to eat fire forever. But God in his grace says, I will put you under the oppression of this doubly wicked king and then I will rescue out of it when you call on me. That's God's grace for his sinful people. We rebel and God remains. We forget, but God is faithful. He does not give up on us. Only a God of grace would do that. So if you find yourself numbered among the forgetful this morning, Know that you're also numbered among the recipients of God's grace. 
You are not without hope. You are not a lost cause. You are not hated and detested by God. You are loved so much that even in this hour, you get to sit in this room with these people and hear the gospel sung and prayed and acted on and studied from God's Word. This is God reaching out to you this morning. He loves you this much. For us as a church, forgetfulness is a major issue that we combat on a regular basis, and here's one way we do it. On the last Sunday of every month, next Sunday, for example, there's going to be a table sitting right here. And inscribed on the front of that table is an incomplete sentence, a phrase that says this, this do in remembrance. The highest act of worship in our church, the taking of the Lord's Supper, is an act of remembering, fighting against our forgetfulness, remembering what God has done for us in Jesus Christ who laid down his life and died on the cross in our place. Three days later, he rose from the dead. And the promise to all who believe in him, turn from our sin and turn to Christ, is that we will be saved once and forevermore. Every Sunday we get together, we're battling to remember and to not forget our God of grace who loves us so much. Let me show you another gift God gives us in this passage. First, God gives us grace to his forgetful people. Second gift is God gives strength to his boring people. In verses 9 and 10, God gives strength to his boring people. Verse 9, when Israel cried out to the Lord, he raised up for them a deliverer, Othniel, son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. So, I take that line to be telling us that Kenaz is Caleb's younger brother. So Caleb is Othniel's uncle. Uh, This is not the first time we've met Othniel, right? You remember chapter 1? We get this little snap, uh, this snapshot of, of action in the middle of all this military conquest. We meet Othniel, son of Kenaz, who goes into battle in the name of the Lord, wins a battle, and as a result, he wins a wife. He wins the daughter of Caleb. So then he gets the wife and he gets some land. And his wife, Aksa, she's a crafty real estate guru type. And she says, hey, if we got land, we need water rights also. So then they get some springs as well. So we've met Othniel before in chapter 1. And we don't know a lot about him. We just, we know that while all the Israelites around him are intermarrying with Canaanites and chasing their gods, Othniel marries a true Israelite, and he continues to walk with Yahweh. In the moment of Israel's need, God raises up this deliverer. The Spirit of the Lord came upon him. He goes to war. He overpowers Cushan Rishathaim of Aram Naharaim. There's one more thing we know about Othniel. Uh, he is completely and totally boring. The details of his life are so very bland. He's not left-handed. He doesn't do anything fancy with an ox goad. He's not a woman. He isn't uh, uh, the weakest in his whole clan. He doesn't have long hair and supernatural strength. There's no major conversion moment that we know of in Othniel's story. No childhood anointing. No visions or special messages from angels. He's the most vanilla of all the judges that we're going to study over the course of the next few weeks. And he barely has his own identity. He's always known as belonging to someone else. He's Othniel, son of Kenaz. Othniel, the son-in-law of Caleb. Uh, 
He's Othniel, Ox's husband, but he's also God's man. So maybe there's a reason that we just have bare essentials here. Maybe there's a reason the story is not big and flamboyant with all kinds of details. Maybe the point is this, God's servant is so colorless so that God would get all the glory for the deliverance in this story. And isn't that just the way of God? To use people who are nameless, invisible, have no platform, have not published a book, have no microphone, have no large following, no social media presence. Isn't it just like God every day to use nameless, invisible, anonymous, faithful servants to do His beautiful kingdom work? Who are the people that have shown you the love in the words of Jesus. My names are these. Frank Pardue, Glenn Davis, Barbara Crawford, Carolyn and Alan Harms, Donna and Dale Wright, Jeff Walker, Kay and Dennis Baisden, Melissa Meacham, and these faithful, invisible servants have shown me Jesus in their lives and words. You can keep your celebrity pastors. I've got, I've got these servants of the Lord on my side. When we study judges, we may want Samson's strength. Or we may want Gideon's faith. or We may want Deborah's courage. But we might do better to pursue Othniel's obscurity. Isn't that how Jesus taught us to walk with him anyways in Matthew chapter 6? When you give to the needy, do it in secret. When you pray, go into your room. When you fast, don't let others know. And then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. God empowers boring, no-name, faithful servants to do his work. So the more you try and downplay your availability or your ability or your strength or your power or your whatever it is to God, to get out of service, just know you qualify yourself with your every excuse. You're exactly the one God's looking for. The one who will just be faithful and let God get the glory for it. Better to live in obscurity in this life and be honored in eternity. So let's be those kinds of people. Obscure Othniel types of servants whom God gives strength to do His beautiful kingdom work. So God gives grace to His forgetful people. God gives strength to no-namers. Third gift God gives, God gives peace to His rescued people. God gives peace to His rescued people. Verse 11, simple line, So the land had peace for 40 years until Othniel, son of Kenaz, died. What does it mean that the land had peace for 40 years? In its plainest sense, it means there's an absence of war. But God's kind of peace is not just the absence of war, it's the flourishing of His people. It means that families are growing. Harvests are being brought in. Your, your, your livestock are increasing. Think, God's people are flourishing in this 40 years of peace that the Lord gives them. If there's peace in the land, what that also means is that there's peace with God. 
So for these 40 years, it's not just that there's no bad guys and there's a whole lot of stuff. All that is a byproduct of God's people walking with God. To have peace in the land means I've got peace with Yahweh above all else. And 40 years. The land had peace for 40 years. Wouldn't it be okay if our servicemen and women didn't have to do a single thing for the next 40 years? I'd be okay with that. You would be too. 40 years of peace. That's not a small thing. That rounded number is an entire generation of people. So for 40 years, these people walk with God and they have peace and their relationship with God is made right. Over the course of my lifetime, I have done many a stupid thing. And I'll tell you about one of the stupidest things I ever did. Probably the stupidest thing I ever did. I was dating this girl named Melissa and I broke up with her. We'd been dating about four months and I, something in me was just not settled. Things were great. She's incredible, beautiful, smart, funny. Uh, and, uh, but there's something in me, I, I, I learned I had a condition that doctors would later diagnose as stupidity, ignorance, uh, head in places it should not be. That, those are the types of things that I'm afflicted with. And so... Uh, I thought the reason I'm in such turmoil is, is because this relationship isn't right. So I called her up. We were college students. Our college campus was about the size of this platform here. So I, I called her up and I broke up with her over the phone. And you'd say, why over the phone? Why would you do that? Well, we didn't have cell phones yet. I couldn't text her. So I just, I had to call. <laughs> and in... In the days that followed, I, I felt like I had made the right choice. But then uh, when I would come across Melissa, one, every time I saw her, she was dressed so pretty. <laughs> she was not in sackcloth and ashes. And every time I saw her, she was smiling. And she, uh, she didn't ignore me. She didn't mount some campaign against me because of my stupidity. She would say, hey, how you doing? Good to see you. All that stuff. And... As the week went on, I realized I, I'm not at peace. I, I don't feel better about these things. Things haven't changed for me in any way. And then a, a moment of clarity, and I realized I have made the biggest mistake of my life. And so I got back with her as soon as I could. We met this time face-to-face, and I confessed what she already knew of my ignorance and the mistake I had made, and uh, I asked if we could start again, and uh, she said yes. I thought I had peace, but I didn't have any peace until the relationship was restored. That's what it's like with us and God. Peace is a byproduct of a right relationship with the God who loves you so much he gave his son for you. People will settle for all kinds of counterfeit peace, But the peace that passes all understanding, the peace that sings songs like great is thy faithfulness, that kind of peace comes from a heart rescued by a God of grace and love. How incredible is this story? It begins with God's people under oppression and it ends with God's people in peace. It's amazing what God will do for those who trust him. So here's what we've learned this morning. God gives grace to his forgetful people. He gives strength to his boring servants. 
He gives peace to His rescued people. When you look at the gifts of God for His people in this story, what conclusions can you draw about God's character? What kind of God is this who gives these kinds of gifts to these kinds of people? He's a faithful God. He's a persistent God. He's a gracious God. He's a loving God. He's a giving God. Is He your God? The great mistake we might make is to read this story as if it's about someone else. Oh, Israel. Oh, Othniel. All of that. But this story is about you and the lengths God has gone to to rescue you from this oppression. But He's done something far greater for you than give you an Othniel son of Kenaz. He has given you a Jesus Christ son of God who came in the flesh and He died in your place for your sin. He took your death so you could live His life and if you will say yes to Him, you'll be given a peace that lasts forever. Forgiven of sin. Set in a direction that God has planned for you. Walking with a heart full of faith and affection and obedience and righteousness as you remember your God and you walk with Him. He gave His Son to die for us and in Him we find new life. And only a God of love would give a gift like that. Would you pray with me, please? Father, we come to this moment uh, in different ways and in different places spiritually. You know the condition of each of our hearts. You know the need that we have. And I'm grateful that when we come to you, we're coming to a God who is bent towards giving. So Lord, I know we don't have to beg you to do things that are in line with your character. We don't have to beg you for gifts that you are happy and ready to give. Lord, we just have to receive. Let us not be a forgetful people, but let us remember the great love you have shown us through your Son. Let us be a trusting people. God, I pray for friends in here that may be at different places on their spiritual journey. I hope, I pray this morning, they've been drawn closer to you for who you truly are. Not a God of their own imagination or some Christian labeled God that they've formed in their own image. But God, help them to see you for the God of grace and love and mercy that you are. Bring them to a place of trust in you. For my brothers and sisters in the faith, God, we know this story is so much about us. It's about your covenant people. And so here we are, people identified by your name who are prone to forgetfulness, prone to idolatry. Lord, prune us this morning by your word. Holy Spirit, press in conviction and lead us in the way of repentance. Let us start that repentance today. Continue it tomorrow and the days after as we walk with you in word and in prayer. Lord, let us lead our families to remember you, to walk with you. Let us be men of integrity, especially in secret places. Let us be women of integrity in every area that we live our lives so that you would be glorified and that we would know that peace that passes all understanding. We love you. We trust you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.